welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we celebrated a Lumpin' anniversary, chatted about AI, and learned about the crisis at our border. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for June 28, 2019. Melanie Adcock spoke with Soren Spicknall about the truth about artificial intelligence. Spicknall, who also happens to run some other radio station, spoke about the limits of AI, the constraints of programming, and how AI may inhibit human ambitions. Tech Scene airs every Friday at 1. When we talk about broken government technology and sort of the genesis for the existence of civic tech communities, these communities don't exist because broken gov tech is like funny or weird or that outdatedness is just some sort of quaint thing that we expect from government. It's because these systems cause real human harms. Mm -hmm. In Christopher's Mm -hmm. case, we're talking about a a system that is put in place to be able to provide assistance to people. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, the government technology systems that are the most out of date or the most in need or most dysfunctional are those that impact our most marginalized communities, especially since Mm -hmm. those communities are often the stakeholders with the least amount of say in the processes that impact them. We're the civic tech community here. exists to confront that. It's not just mm-hmm. about making a town's website look better. It's about mm-hmm. providing better outcomes for people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, we're, we're all nodding in, uh, in wholehearted agreement with that. And, and it's, uh, it's very well stated, Soren, a very good... Um, a good tidbit there to, to help explain the importance of of civic tech, and uh, and I know I know you focus a lot in the area of AI and ethics too, and I, I wanted to to ask you a bit about that, um, and because that because that is your your job too. Um, so it, could you? I mean, I, I think I would like to touch on a couple things with you, Soren, too, mm-hmm. like AI and ethics. Uh, what what do you do? What does that entail? And then, it, secondly, you are speaking at an upcoming event at Shy Hack Night, um, coincidentally. Um, so I'd like to have you tell us as well um, what that talk will be about and what you'll be covering too. Yeah. So let's start with the first part, um, AI. Um, I work in industry right now rather than for government or, or nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I never really saw myself working for an early stage startup, but it is where I ended up because mm-hmm. I was approached by Raj Karmani, who's the previous CTO of Farmer's Fridge, the fresh food oh. vending machine mm-hmm. company. Yep. And Familiar he had a vision for a company that would provide data science and AI services to small businesses in a way that was inherently ethical and use statistical Mm. methods that were able to be understood by our customers and by our customers' customers. Basically Mm -hmm. taking an approach of ethical and, um, I hate using the word humane here because there's a specific sub-community of technologists that has sort of co-opted that term. Uh, That's a whole other conversation, but um, transparent technology solutions for small businesses in a way where I could continue to use the same approach that I used in civic tech. So let's talk about AI. Mm -hmm. AI is a term that is primarily used today to get funding. AI (laughs) does not necessarily mean anything in particular. And when you talk about like human level cognition, uh, we are nowhere near that as Mm -hmm. an industry. There's a great article um, from a person who goes by Oshium online and it's called Strong AI Isn't Here Yet, Mm -hmm. lays out, basically the state of the industry, 
why this promise of human level cognition is so far away from what automated systems are able to do. That said, it's important to understand that just because general human cognition is not achievable by an automated system does not mean that AI or data science or whatever you happen to call it, it's data science on the inside, it's machine learning when you're hiring and it's AI when you're funding. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that those systems aren't capable of creating really scary outcomes mm-hmm. and outcomes mm-hmm. that are inauditable, outcomes that are hard to interpret, hard to regulate. So. A lot of my work focuses on making sure that when organizations collect data, for instance, that they're only collecting data that is of absolute use to them, that they're not going and trawling through every little personal detail like a lot of large tech companies do Mm -hmm. to get you just a little bit closer to buying a product. Um, Also, a lot of this data that gets collected by large organizations and companies tend to stand in as proxies for data that is protected in various ways. So like information about somebody's magazine subscriptions Mm -hmm. can end up being what is called a proxy or a stand-in for race, for instance. So if you have an automated system that's making decisions based on a large number of variables about like what movie to recommend or more consequentially, like who gets a loan, Mm-hmm. If you have a magazine subscription piece of information about somebody and they're subscribed to Ebony Magazine, then that's effectively standing in for their race, for instance. Wow. There's also yeah. dangers in the predictive systems that we use in general, uh, what we're making inferences from, but also when we make inferences, what sort of stereotypes or expectations are we feeding into a system? Um, I'm giving a talk next Tuesday at Shy Hack Night about the use of data around LGBT plus people, um, how data is collected on gender and sexuality through various digital systems. I myself am pansexual. Um, and how that data sort of reinforces stereotypical or discriminatory outcomes in many circumstances and what we as an industry can do about it. In many cases, and what my day-to-day work focuses on, the methods that are used overall by industry use far more data and far more complexity than they need to to achieve their goals and are highly invasive. So really the end lesson from the talk that I'm giving on Tuesday, not to spoil it because I want you all to be there, (laughs) is that really the best approach in many cases is to not collect that data at all. Mario Smith celebrated his 19th anniversary with a live showcase from Mars Tap Room. Liz Toussaint came by to sing and celebrate. Let's listen in. You are a lovely bunch. (laughs) I did think it was for years. I thought it was a lovely bunch. One day I'm going to do a show with songs that I got the names wrong. And and I'm just going to play all this and tell you the names I thought they were. Lovely bunch would be one of those songs. Um, I'm about to introduce to you someone who is very special to me, who has uh, been nothing but gracious and kind, and we had her on the show, what was that, two weeks ago, Liz? And she killed it. It was an amazing, amazing set, but I didn't get enough. I want more of Liz Toussaint, so to speak. And so, um, ladies and gentlemen, fresh off of her uh, appearance from our show two weeks ago, she is the star of the movie... American is Bean Pie. Her album, American is Bean Pie, is available in all platforms. Please, Mars Taproom, make some noise for my friend Liz Toussaint. 
Lucero spoke with labor activists at the University of Chicago who are behind the school's attempts to get the U of C to recognize the Graduate Students' Union. Natalia Pilon and Grant McDonald discussed why U of C is stalling, their walkouts, and what is next for labor at universities. Labor Express airs every Sunday at 8 p.m.
A little bit of background here. Um, so GSU, uh, Graduate Students Union at UFC, formed quite a bit of, a while ago, back in 2007. I was actually, because I'm an old person, I was around uh, when, in some of those early days, some of my old friends, from and they, and they were young. I was old then, and they were young, so that's how old I am, when they were first starting to organize. Uh, and it's real, I, I, they've got to be so excited to see what's grown, you know, in those 10 years, or no, more than 10 years now, right? What, like 12, 13 years since that happened. Uh, but it was a long, long fight, and it wasn't until uh, 2017, I know, that you guys finally um, had your uh, your recognition election. And right now, that's what you're still basically, I think, in a fight for recognition. Can you explain kind of where that's at and what's going on with that? Yeah. I, let me I'm sorry, let me reintroduce. So we got Grant McDonald's about to speak, right? And maybe you can introduce yourself and, and tell you just a little bit about yourself. And then we also have... Natalia, and I'm going to get this right, this for Pyland, right? Yes. I am so sorry about before. Okay, so go ahead, Grant, sorry. Yeah, good morning. So um, I'm a PhD and grad worker in the geophysical sciences at the University of Chicago. I study uh, climate change in Antarctica. Um, and yeah, so I, I got involved in GSU really in 2017 when things were kicking up a notch. Um, grow, we were growing a lot. And that came after Columbia, grads at Columbia, um, filed for union recognition and that um, their case caused a change in the national law which um, meant that grads at private unit grad workers at private universities across the nation were now classed as as employees which give us the right to a labor union and ca- as soon as that happened there was a, a wave across across the country um, we organized a lot um, and we we filed for recognition in the spring of 2017 and then had an election in the fall which we vote, where we voted decisively for a union. Mm-hmm. And the problem, though, is that so you overwhelming vote, uh, you know, for the union, um, and you kind of started to make the next steps towards getting recognized by the university and so on. But that's kind of where things are stalled out now, right? That um, the university still hasn't recognized you, right? That was kind of what the recent labor action was all about. Is that correct? Yeah. So. The University of Chicago, after we had our election, decided to stall. Um, they didn't want to recognize us. They don't think that graduate workers are workers. Um, actually, the president of University of Chicago right now, Zimmer, was the provost at Brown when the original decision that graduate workers were employees at private universities was flipped in 2004. So he's got this long ideological battle Mm. against unions and the labor movement. Um, Yeah, so they've been kind of stalling. They said we weren't workers, and then they wanted to take it to NLRB. And this was right after the uh, Trump administration had put on anti-labor officers at the NLRB. So we decided to pull the petition to conserve the Columbia decision that we were employees and have been looking for voluntary recognition ever since. Right. So that's that's where a lot of the uh, struggles at not just your university, but at several of the universities are at. Right. Which is because of the Trump administration coming into office because of the And it, basically, this has gone back and forth every time there's a new, you know, basically change of presidential administration. It goes from, you know, whether or not uh, graduate employees are being classified as workers or whether or not they're they're losing that classification. And um, and so there's been kind of a legal strategy on the part of the grad student unions to decide whether or not to pursue an NLRB approach or whether to kind of push for uh, just recognition directly by the employer, by the university, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So Columbia went through the NLRB process and eventually got recognition. Uh, Harvard too, but there are some other institutions where they've they've um, went for direct recognition, such as I think Brown and Georgetown, and now us. You know, there's nothing stopping the University of Chicago at any point. They don't need an NLRB election to tell them to recognize us. Have you gotten any support from UIC? Because I know they just went through some labor actions as well with something similar with grad students. Have you gotten much help from them? Yeah, we actually have a lot of support throughout the Chicagoland area. Over the time of our labor action, we had people come down from UIC, Northwestern, Loyola, uh, I think we even had people from UIUC coming to uh, picket with us. We had faculty, undergrads, uh, electeds, all s- people from the labor u- uh, movement throughout Chicago. So, um, yeah, I would say it, it's very much the administration who is putting the stop to um, our union. I should introduce to it. I, Shelley, I'm so sorry it's that okay. when I was introducing the guests, I didn't introduce uh, my other fellow interviewer here. Uh, so uh, Shelly Burke has been terrific uh, being one of my stringers here in Chicago as I've moved to California and can't be on scene so much lately. And you've been doing a terrific job gathering audio for me here in Chicago. So thank you. You're in studio today too, also going to be helping out with the interview. So thank you very much for that. Uh, a member of UE also, so you'll yep. be throwing in your experience too, which ties in with actually a lot of what you know is going on with the grad students too. Um, yeah, you brought, you brought something really important here too, which is, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you guys in here is that this has been the year of grad student, uh, uh, kind of actions in Chicago, right? So you've had the UIC students have the successful action that they had. The Loyola students had their action as well. So this has been kind of across the city that's been happening. One thing I think is important for maybe people to understand is there is a bit of a divide in terms of the public universities and the private universities in this regard, right? So the, to some degree, the UI, not to make it sound like they had it easy, but the UIC grad students have the benefit of in the context of the public universities, there are some differences there in terms of the legal context that they're working in. For instance, one thing I think that's been confusing, and I even, see, I even saw some of the articles that are out there had to correct themselves like after they published the article, because uh, there's Illinois state law that's being proposed, right, that would actually provide for public university grad students to be recognized at the state level as employees. So it, it would remove this kind of game that the universities are playing where they're trying to constantly reclassify, you know, the grad employees as non-employees. Um, but that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't apply to private universities, right? So you're at, at the private universities, you're kind of in a, an extra bind there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's been uh, unions, grad unions at public institutions for years right across the country, you know, the California system, unionized University of Michigan, and yeah, UIC. Um, but the the legal landscape is different for us in, in a private universities. It's more complicated, and it's kind of absurd, really, that um, the University of Chicago and some other private institutions are arguing that that it's somehow different for us that we are not workers, even if um, grads at public institutions are. You know, one of the things I think is really awesome about your guys' website that you guys put together is it has a really, really good. Um, kind of explanation of all this and a really good history of kind of grad student organizing in general. It's actually a big education for me as I was kind of getting prepared uh, to talk to you guys today. Um, they go through, I something, something I knew, never knew, right, that they go through the fact that I guess the, the very first kind of GEOs or the first kind of grad employee organizations go all the way back to 69, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, teaching assistants affiliated with uh, with AFT. Um, there's now, I guess, 23 
officially recognize uh, grad employee unions across the country. Um, and there's been some real successes, you know, in recent years uh, with this organizing. But as we've been pointing out, the key problem here is this classification issue, right? What I think is interesting about that is I think this is an example, um, although it's it's in some ways specific to the grad employees situation where you're, you know, are you students? Are you um, are you workers? It's actually something that is affecting a, more and more categories of workers across the economy, right? So one of the things that I've been trying to address on the program more in recent uh, years is um, as we're moving into, you know, kind of a, a new economy. And that's not the best term because it's just old forms of exploitation and new, like, you know, dress, right? Um, but there's a lot of workers that are falling into these, you know, situations of, of misclassification or classification. And the whole issue of wage theft, right? A big part of wage theft has to do with how workers are, are classified. I was an Uber driver, right, uh, for the last year. That's been a big thing behind the uh, the uh, recent strikes of the Uber drivers, right, is that they're classified as, as independent contractors, so they're not protected by labor law in the same way that other workers are. Uh Shelly, you this is something that maybe can you speak to a little bit of what your experience about this? Yeah, so I'm technically a cab driver out of or rail crew driver out of Franklin Park for a small railroad. And actually recently our company switched from uh Kronos to for payroll to Day Force. And in the process, stuff got screwed up. Our union dues weren't coming out for some people, and then people haven't been getting paid. And I, I know I saw that some of you guys were not getting paid for like two to eight weeks past what you're supposed to be getting paid? Uh, yeah, so that's one of the things that we would like to address. It's um, the way that graduate workers get paid is very variable. Some people get paid quarterly, some people get paid monthly, some people get paid biweekly, and that makes it very difficult for people to get paid on time, um, especially when you switch from one form of payment to another. So one of the big issues is that people who are on the quarterly system when they switch to the monthly um, have two months where they don't get paid um, because the first paycheck of the academic year comes so much later than the quarter starts. Um, Were you able to get any of your victories? I know it was like there was health insurance, uh, the university is not recognizing your union. Did you get, were you able to get very much of that in your? So, um what we'd actually want in a contract is, as you know, has not been decided yet. We've had a bargaining survey, but I think through our pressure on the university, we, we've definitely made made gains. Um, we've we've helped mobilize people and highlight a lot of issues that are important to people on campus. And I have no doubt that a lot of the university's improvements that they have made have been in response to pressure from GSU. Yeah, and I think they've also um, started all these committees to try to. Um, show that they take into account graduate worker perspective, but really all these committees don't hold that much power because the university can decide to not pay attention to recommendations, um, which would be totally different from true participation that a contract would give us. That's awesome. Right, right, and and so yeah, to reemphasize, you're you're kind of in that very early stage too, where you're still just fighting for recognition. You, you're not even at the stage of a first contract, unfortunately, because you're, the university is still refusing to recognize you, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, we ha- we had a bargaining survey la- last year after we um, after or two years ago after we uh, won our election, as we you know hoped the university would do the right thing and recognize us, but. Um, Unfortunately, actually fighting for a contract is still some time away right now. Right, right. 
I know, though, that one thing that, again, uh, the website for, for uh, GSU points out is that, you know, despite not having a contract, despite not even being recognized as a union, you have made gains just from your organization. Some of the things they highlight is uh, pay increases, health improvements in the health care, uh, improvements in the parental leave policies, stipends for child care, uh, freeze in advanced residency tuition. So this this is another example of, of your struggle being something that's much broader, I think, than just the grad student situation, right? So we're seeing, I think, the growth of what they call sometimes minority unions or um, there's all kinds of other terms for this, but but cases where workers uh, use their uh, the rights they do have, limited as they may be under our labor law, to uh, to use concerted activity and so on to win benefits, even if they don't have a union contract, right? Even if they're not recognized as a union, there's there are things that workers can do to uh, fight back and to win on the job, use direct action strategies and so on to win. And I think that's what you guys have done, right? Yeah, definitely. Although I would say um, we can we can do a lot more with a contract, and I really believe we can get to that position of of having a contract. We we have the power to move the university towards that. Fresh towel? Oh, uh, yes. Thank you. Are you having a good night? I'm just on a date with a guy who makes me so nervous. Don't be. You look great. You want a cigarette? Calm me down a little? I don't smoke. Well, how about something stronger? What? Yeah, most of this mouthwash is like 60 proof. Um, I think I'm probably good. Spritz of perfume? You don't want him smelling this flop sweat you got going on. No, thank you. What, what the? Oh, wow. That's a nice scent. Thank you. It was not cheap. Mm-hmm. Well, see ya. Oh, it was my mother's favorite. I bought it to see if she would respond to anything from the coma. Oh my god. Did it work? You know, we're, uh, we're taking it one day at a time. You poor dear. Here. Thank you so much, miss. Ah, jeez. You know, I, I didn't know your mom was dead or something. <laughs> well, if you see her, don't tell her I said that. She'd eh? kill me. What's going on, Kyle? When I said I wanted to see what you do for a living, I was hoping that maybe I'd be able to do a ride-along or shadow you or something. Well, you obviously can't come in here. You're a guy. Well, how about I take the men's room and diversify this stuff? Diversify? Who taught you that? Have you been reading Men's Health again? Ah, come on. Why don't you just set up shop outside between the bathrooms? You could get both dudes and dudettes. There is a level of personal service required for these fat donations. Right, but I got a bow tie. I gotta get something to eat, Kyle. Uh, Why don't you float the mop as we agree? I want to attend to the patrons of the bathroom. The mop and the out-of-service signs Uh, are in the utility closet over there. Five minutes to mop, five minutes to dry. Done. Welcome to the ladies' room. Here. Forget this. Time to diversify. Oh, my gosh. Hello. Uh, wrong bathroom. So sorry. Nope. By all means, this is the right bathroom. Uh, what are you doing in here? That's okay. I'm the bathroom attendant. So when you're done washing your hands, you come over to me. I give you a piece of gum. I got a spray of cologne for you. I got some finger sandwiches. I mean, I even got some hummus. Look at the spread. Okay. Can you leave? Now you see, this is a gender-diversified bathroom. Uh, yeah, so okay. basically... It, okay, cool. Uh, 
Hey, all right, I got my first customer. Get this ready here. Got the carrots. Hello there, El Capitan. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I just gotta use the sink. Having a rough night? <sighs> you, you could say that. Oh, you're looking sharp there, Cap. Yeah, there's this girl I'm on, I'm on a date with, and I, I think I like her, and I'm trying to figure out how to tell her, and I don't know what she's gonna say. Take a minute, have a smoke, calm down. Yeah, yeah, thanks, I just need a minute. This'll do it. Kyle, what are you doing? Why is the men's room out of service? This is a gender-diversified co-ed bathroom. This is not a good idea. Why are you so backwards thinking, Jess? Yeah. This particular toilet is not legally equipped for co-ed occupancy, and I don't think we, as extra-legal restroom attendants, get to make that call. Is there a party out here? Yeah, grab a sandwich. Laura? James? Did, did you... That was you? I... You were talking about me? Uh, I think you're a babe. <laughs> I I really like you. Ugh. Thank God there's plenty of places to barf in here. What a sappy moment. Let's get out of this bathroom. Thanks for the smoke. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. We should have got a bigger tip. No, I can't believe that girl didn't wash her hands. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump is accused of rape by a well-known New York advice columnist. Trump pulls back from a military strike in Iran. Trump tried to argue immigrant children don't need soap or toothbrushes. Trump delays ice raids in our city. And another Trump is chased out of Chicago. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 882, June 20th. Trump said that Iran made a very big mistake after an American drone was shot down in the Strait of Hormuz. Iran claimed the drone violated Iranian airspace, while the U.S. military claimed it was, quote, an unprovoked attack on a U.S. surveillance asset over international airspace. Trump said it must have been a mistake by someone, quote, loose and stupid. In a bipartisan rebuke, the Senate voted to block the sale of $8.1 billion in munitions to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The Senate passed three measures to block Trump from using his emergency authority to complete those sales. Trump is now expected to veto the resolutions. A Trump administration lawyer disputed that detained migrant children were entitled to toothbrushes and soap. The Department of Justice's Sarah Fabian claimed that the government was adhering to a landmark ruling requiring migrants to be kept in safe and sanitary facilities by pointing out the law did not mention soap. An incredulous Judge William Fletcher replied, Are you arguing seriously that you do not read the agreement as requiring you to do anything other than what I just described? Cold all night long, lights on all night long, sleeping on concrete, and you've got an aluminum foil blanket. In denying the Trump motion, the judge said it was inconceivable a government would describe those conditions as safe or sanitary. Over 350 children are being held in Texas in a concentration camp. Hope Hicks refused to answer questions before the House Judiciary Committee. White House counsel Pat Cipollone had previously said Hicks was, quote, absolutely immune from discussing her tenure in the Trump administration. Hicks wouldn't answer questions as basic as where she sat in the West Wing or whether she told the truth to Robert Mueller. Trump vowed to cure cancer and end AIDS if he's elected to a second term. Quote, I will come up with the cures to many, many problems, to many, many diseases. Meanwhile, his son, Trump Jr., mocked Joe Biden for saying he wants to cure cancer. Biden had been a key mover behind the Obama-era $50 billion cancer moonshot fund. 
And known liar Sarah Huckabee Sanders is extremely serious about running for governor of Arkansas. A suit was filed claiming Ivanka Trump violated the Hatch Act, citing a tweet two days before Trump's 2020 campaign launch that included the campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, and stated the best is yet to come. Date 183, June 21st. Trump authorized a retaliatory military strike in Iran, but then called it off 10 minutes before because the response, quote, would not have been proportionate. The planned airstrikes would have killed approximately 150 people. Prior to the aborted strike, Trump had tweeted, quote, he was cocked and loaded for a strike. Iran apparently received a message from Trump via Oman warning an attack was imminent. Iranian officials said Trump claimed he was against any war with Iran and wanted to talk to Tehran about various issues. They also said Trump gave a short period of time to get a response, but Iran's immediate response was that it is up to our supreme leader. Also, Nancy Pelosi was not notified of the pending strikes. Pelosi, who was second in line in secession, should have been. Trump later claimed he had the unilateral right to wage war in Iran, but that he wanted to keep Congress abreast of matters. Trump was accused of rape by a New York-based advice columnist. E. Jean Carroll said in a New York Magazine cover story that Trump sexually assaulted her in a Manhattan department store dressing room in the mid-1990s. Trump called the accusation false and denied knowing Carroll, but a picture from the era surfaced showing Trump and Carroll together. According to Carroll, she met Trump inside a Bergdorf Goodman when he told her he was buying a gift for a girl and needed help. On the lingerie section, Carroll said Trump suggested a lace bodysuit and encouraged her to try it on. Quote, the moment the dressing room door is closed, he lunges at me, pushes me against the wall, hitting my head quite hard, puts his mouth against my lips. He sees both my arms and he pushes me up against the wall a second time. And as I became aware of how large he is, he holds me against the wall with his shoulder and jams his hand under my coat dress and pulls down my tights. Trump claimed, shame on those who make up false stories of assault to try to get publicity for themselves or sell a book or carry out a political agenda. Later on the day, Trump threatened the Time Magazine reporter with prison after he tried to take a photo of the letter allegedly sent to Trump by Kim Jong-un. Trump showed four reporters the letter he said was written by Kim Jong-un. Later in the interview, the subject turned to Robert Mueller's report. Instead of answering that question, Trump lashed out about a photographer's attempt to take a shot of the letter. Quote, well, you can go to prison instead because if you use, if you use the photograph you took of the letter that I gave you, the photographer replied, did you just threaten me with prison? Date 884, June 22nd. Trump directed ICE to conduct a mass roundup of migrant families that have received deportation orders, but then delay the roundups for two weeks to give Congress time to, quote, get its act together. The raids called the Family Op were to take place in 10 cities targeting about 2,000 immigrants facing deportation orders. ICE leaders expressed concerns that officers' safety would be in jeopardy because too many details about the raids have been made public, mainly by Trump himself in tweets. Trump also claimed Chicago was one of several high-crime cities that are fighting the sweep. A federal appeals court ruled that the Trump administration's family planning gag rule can immediately take effect nationwide. The ruling lifts national injunctions ordered by lower federal courts in Oregon and Washington state, as well as a statewide injunction in California, allowing Trump to strip federal Title X funding from any clinic that provides abortions or abortion referrals. Planned Parenthood now faces a cut of $60 million in Title X funds. The House subpoenaed businessman Felix Sater after he failed to show up for a voluntary interview. Sater worked with Michael Cohen to build a Trump Tower in Moscow before the 2016 election. Sater claimed he was ill and just simply slept through his alarm. Three senators received a classified Pentagon briefing about a series of reported Navy encounters with UFOs. That briefing came several days after Trump claimed he had also been briefed on the reports. Quote, people are saying they're seeing UFOs. Do I believe it? Not particularly. 
885, June 23rd. Trump approved an offensive cyber strike that disabled Iranian computer systems used to control rocket and missile launches. U.S. Cyber Command launched the cyber strikes against the Revolutionary Guard this weekend. Federal prosecutors say that Roger Stone has violated his gag order with a recent social media post. Stone was banned by Judge Amy Berman Jackson from making public statements after he posted a photo of the judge on Instagram with crosshairs behind her head. Nearly 100 internal Trump transition team vetting documents were leaked, revealing a wide range of questions about several officials who went on to secure high-ranking positions. Disgraced former EPA head Scott Pruitt had a section in his vetting form titled, quote, allegations of coziness with big energy companies. Former Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price had a section titled, quote, dysfunction and division haunted Price's leadership of the House Budget Committee. Chris Kobach had white supremacy flag. And Trump's transition team was so worried about Rudy Giuliani being chosen as Secretary of State, they created an entire 25-page document entitled, quote, Rudy Giuliani Business Times Research Dossier with many accounts of his foreign entanglements. Others were flagged simply for criticizing Trump. Mick Mulvaney had several of them, including his assessment that Trump is not a very good person. Nikki Haley, who went on to be the UN ambassador, was flagged for saying that Trump is, quote, everything we teach our kids not to do in kindergarten. And then there was General David Petraeus, he was flagged for being opposed to torture. Day 186, June 24th. Trump signed an executive order that imposed, quote, hard-hitting sanctions on Iran. The new sanctions will deny Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and eight Iranian military commanders access to world financial markets. The Trump administration has quietly stopped promoting dozens of taxpayer-funded studies about the impacts of climate change. Those studies include a discovery that rice loses vitamins, Climate change exacerbates allergy seasons and a warning in an expected reduction of the quality of important grasses used to feed and raise cattle. All the studies were peer-reviewed and cleared through the Agricultural Research Service. Meanwhile, Vice President Mike Pence refused to say that climate change was a legitimate threat to the U.S. Instead, Pence said on Meet the Press that Trump would, quote, always follow the science on the issue. The House Oversight Committee subpoenaed Kellyanne Conway related to her violations of the Hatch Act. Conway claims the House Democrats are seeking her testimony in retaliation for successfully managing Trump's campaign. Trump responded by moving to block her from testifying. And Fox News host Jeanine Pirro lobbied for a top Justice Department job under Jeff Sessions. Sessions, however, blocked the appointment. Pirro responded by attacking Sessions on her show, calling him the most dangerous person in the U.S. Trump then told Pirro appointing Sessions as his attorney general was, quote, his biggest mistake and that he'd like a do-over. 887, June 25th. The U.S. removed most of the children from a remote Border Patrol station in Texas following reports that more than 300 children were detained there, caring for each other with inadequate food, water, or sanitation. Lawmakers from both parties had criticized the situation. Lawyers of the administration had famously tried to argue they were not required to give the children toothbrushes or soap. Trump again denied allegations he sexually assaulted a columnist in the 1990s, claiming, quote, she's not my type. Trump said E. Jean Carroll was totally lying about the alleged attack in a New York department store. Carroll maintains she fought back against Trump and is now considering pressing charges. Carroll is the 16th woman to accuse Trump of sexual misconduct. The House Oversight and Reform Committee formally called in the House to hold Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in contempt for defying congressional subpoenas. Both men have refused to testify on questions of why they sought to add a controversial question to the 2020 sentences. Iran called Trump's White House mentally retarded and said they wouldn't be intimidated by new sanctions. Iran's foreign ministry also said Trump's leadership would lead to the permanent closure of the road of diplomacy. Meanwhile, Trump tweeted that any attack by Iran on U.S. interests would be answered by great and overwhelming force, and overwhelming will mean obliteration. 
Treasury Department's Inspector General is opening an investigation into why Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin delayed the new $20 bill featuring Harriet Tubman. Trump has denied that it purposely delayed the recent bill, but Trump has criticized the idea of replacing Andrew Jackson. He thinks that Tubman should instead be on the little-used $2 bill. A federal judge ruled that the Democrats' emoluments lawsuit against Trump can't proceed. District Judge Emmett Sullivan said discovery could begin Friday. Democrats are now expected to seek financial information, interviews, and other records from Trump and the Trump Organization. Date 188, June 26. Robert Mueller has reluctantly agreed to testify in public before Congress next month about his investigation into Russia's election interference and possible obstruction of justice by Trump. Those hearings, which will take place on two days beginning July 17th, could reshape the political landscape and a possible impeachment inquiry by the Democrat-controlled House. Customs and Borders interim head John Sanders resigned over the continuing public fury over the treatment of detained migrant children. Sanders, however, also said 100 or more children were being sent back to the highly criticized station in Texas because overcrowding there had been alleviated. Lawyers for the immigrants said that was completely untrue and that children were as young as four were being cared for by other children. Meanwhile, the Border Patrol is rejecting donations of toys, soap, toothbrushes, diapers, and medicine for the children. The House also voted to send $4.5 billion in humanitarian aid to the border to address the horrific conditions facing that crush of migrants. But the bill, which attaches big strings to how the money could be spent, faces a tough path. A similar measure with fewer strings has drawn the partisan support in the Senate. Trump claimed the House bill, quote, contains partisan provisions designed to hamstring the administration's border enforcement efforts. Melania Trump's communications director was named as the next White House press secretary, replacing Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Stephanie Grisham will also take over the role of communications director. The Justice Department is suing Omarosa Mangalt Newman for failing to file a legally required personal financial disclosure report after she was fired. The suit filed Tuesday asked a judge to order Mangalt Newman to file the report and pay a penalty of $50,000 for willfully defying the ethics mandate. Omarosa fired back, saying the suit is political payback, and claimed she can't file the report because the White House has never returned her personal files. The House again voted to subpoena Kellyanne Conway, who refuses to testify about the Hatch Act. And a server at the Aviary in Chicago was questioned by the Secret Service after allegedly spitting on Eric Trump. The Secret Service declined to comment on the incident. These are the Trump Diaries. Aventist was in Studio A last week, blowing us all away. This is Human Driver. I'm 
Nancy Clem spoke with Lynn Fang about community compost and urban farming projects in the Los Angeles, California area. Fang discussed her passion for teaching people about healthy soil, healthy food, and growing food in so-called food deserts. Spontaneous Vegetation airs every other Sunday at 5 p.m. When people ask me about how I got into this, I kind of point to the first, um, the last class I took in my undergrad, which was basically an agroecology class where we got to learn about all of the issues around chemical agriculture in the global south and the issues around Monsanto um, and GMOs. And that kind of was my first exposure to all of this information, and I felt very compelled to contribute positively towards that. And I was inspired by the activists um, who had been working in that field um, and their stories. And so I kind of, that kind of started my journey of like learning about food uh, justice issues and sustainability and ecological design. And I got involved with community gardens and probably the very first kind of organic gardening class I took was at a community garden in San Francisco. It's called like the Get Up Program. It was a gardening composting educator training program. And so at the end of that class, um, we all had to teach, co-teach a compost workshop. Um, and I remember it was during that class, I think our, one of our teachers was very passionate about composting, and I was always drawn to it. Um, it there was something magnetic about it, something I really liked about it, and I was always intrigued by the composting. And so, <laughs> do you know what's magnetic about it now? I didn't know back then, but what is? Oh, <laughs> or maybe we're, we're going to discover during the interview. Um, but you do know what gets you going on it. Um, I know what gets me going on it, but um, I like I liked you to to tell us. So are you originally from Los Angeles and because um, you're quite rooted there right now? No, I'm not. Um, I have kind of been all over the place. Mostly I tell people that I grew up in the Bay Area. I was there from when I was 8 till about 24. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's most of my upbringing. And so I've only, I've, I've been back and forth from L.A. and the Bay Area for a little bit and it's only in the last um, four or five years that I have really decided I want to stay here and put roots down here. Uh-huh. Well, 
Let's talk a little bit about, um, let's dive into one of your projects, okay? You have told me about the EcoFarm model, which is a community-oriented model that you have been developing. And you told me that one site is at a Quaker meeting house in Claremont. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about uh, this model and um, how it how it's how it's like working with the Quakers because what's interesting is that um, well I'll I'll hold off on that so tell tell us more about the Eagle Farm model um, and then how that uh, takes specific shape with the Quaker community you're working with. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Eco Farm is an acronym. It stands for ecological and community-oriented farming and resource management, which is really kind of a fancy way of saying kind of an integrated community compost farm site um, that's very rooted in ecological design and is also very concerned with, you know, increasing food access to the community um, and also maintaining a diverse and inclusive atmosphere on the site and providing community gathering space and education and programming there as well. And yeah, so one of our pilot projects um, that we launched last year was at the Quaker Meeting uh, site in Claremont, and it's a residential food waste drop-off program, and uh, you pay a small fee, and that helps to pay for a site manager to come and do all of the composting there. Um, and we're proposing to expand into the garden area, so we'll have our full EcoFarm program um, once that's established so at that site. Yeah, I was curious about um, the Quakers hosting you because what's interesting about um, different uh, religious groups is that some of them have kind of a, a spiritual mandate to work with land and um, a just and fair manner? Is that part of the Quaker um, mission or, or, yeah? Yeah, so they're very interested in environmental sustainability. Like, mm -hmm. that's a really strong value for them. And so projects that speak to that and help them to um, enhance their contributions towards sustainability are ones that, you know, that they can feel resonant with and support at their site. Um, so that is, has really been kind of the key connection point um, that allowed them to feel good about hosting this composting project at their site, as yeah. well as the, the whole eco-farm model there. And are they, um, and they expand to broader community too? So they're just hosting the site so they're open to other community members coming through? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So folks from the Quaker meeting are participating, and then there's some other community groups that are meeting there that are participating. But yeah, it is open up to neighbors um, and other folks from the nearby community to participate in that program also. And we do have some community events there, so they are comfortable, you know, opening up their space mm -hmm. um, for community work days and things. So are you saying that they're supporting the project uh, financially or anybody who drops off compost there supports the project? Um, they did um, provide some financial support initially, kind of like a, a little bit of capital funds for us to buy tools um, and patch up the irrigation and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as 
paying for the program management. That is a small fee. Right now, it, past year, it was about a dollar a week, so like $52 a year for people to be able to drop off their food waste there. And that paid a small stipend for a site manager to come and manage the compost piles. Mm, yeah, because you need a site manager because most people don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, and for us, it's important that we manage it really well. Like, mm-hmm. for me, I'm really interested in, you know, bringing, like, thermophilic management um, to community compost sites um, that we do. So, like, we um, are able to accept, you know, dairy meat bones at our site because we are really rigorous about getting to that thermophilic temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're able to accept those things and feel confident about it, um, whereas, you know, other community compost sites may not be, like, managing it at that level necessarily. So I just want to clarify for the audience that everybody knows what thermophilic means, but it means hot and hot temperatures, and it's over 113 degrees Fahrenheit is, like, the bottom, you know, limit, um, but you usually are trying to get your piles up to about what? Yeah, so we're shooting for like 130 to mm-hmm. 150, so yeah. we want to be able to meet that standard of, like the industry has a standard of what's called PFRP, pathogen, or process for further reducing pathogens, and mm-hmm. that just specifies like, oh, you need to hit 130 degrees for however many days to ensure that you're killing off human and plant pathogens and such, so that, that's our goal is to meet that PFRP standard. Yeah. So you are mostly working with thermophilic uh, systems or hot systems. Do you also work with uh, lower temperature systems or uh, the mesophilic systems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so right now primarily I'm working with thermophilic systems Mm -hmm. and um, in our food waste composting. Um, I am interested in exploring some of the more mesophilic composting methods, such as like, you know, like a pure pure leaf kind of compost um, or looking at uh, creating more fungally dominant compost piles, which may be more static and, or maybe more carbon heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, those are possibilities as we branch out in our um, programming and experimentation to, to explore. Um, but right now we're kind of we're kind of more focused on like the food waste diversion and processing. So we want to do like a thermophilic process for, mm-hmm. for that. And how long is a turnaround from um, in your piles? Like when you get when do you batch out? Um, we have uh, so it probably like like once the first pile starts getting built mm-hmm. um, to the point where we're harvesting finished material, uh, we have about a six month process. Um, and so we're not turning quite as frequently as um, some other folks might be. So we're kind of, um, we're turning like every uh, six weeks or so, um, all of the piles. So that's kind of the schedule that we have worked out there. Are we doing yet? 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 So this, this is called the oven. I, I, 
the oven. Yeah, don't, don't worry. It's not. It's not. I don't an oven. like. I'm very afraid. I, you know, my my fear of ovens. It's. I uh, don't worry. It's not an oven. It just gets very very hot when okay. it's turned on. That's good. Too. Um. All right. So yeah, you see this sort of emitter. This we have a sort of a housing and a uh, and a what appears to be a bulb. I'm gonna face this bulb towards you because uh, do you? Um. That's where the epsilon waves come out of. Um, oh. Okay. I've been. I've sure. been. I've been bathing myself in these waves for sure. for weeks now is it some sort is it some sort of like filament of some uh, of some sort right yeah it's a fluorescent tube inside well it's actually quite interesting yes there is there is a tube of sorts and it's packed with a proprietary mixture of all natural organic plutonium fair trade americium and something never seen before in nature and this is the secret this Uh is the secret sauce Simi, excuse me, simoniate dicarboxide. <laughs> what? What's what's the molar mass of that one? Uh, they, they, you'd have to ask, you'd have to ask uh, Doctor Simi yourself, right? Yeah. It's, pro- it's a proprietary element. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, it's it's really quite um, intriguing, and you can see on the side here we have some knobs. Mm-hmm. Um, now this big knob here, all right, that's gonna that's gonna be your your gross density, okay, sure. of of waves. Um, so the, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be your luminosity. Uh, in a way, in a way, right. Um, there's the also amount of waves. Exactly. Sure. Um, this is sort of the crude control. Sure. Um, when you're using this apparatus, um, you want to start low and sure. work your way up over Higher time. Energy. Yeah. Yes. O- over over time. Um, and I, now I know there. I'm seeing a bright light, and it's cur- and it's burning my eyes. But I speculate that that's not in fact what's doing the job. That's really. You know the stuff in the visible and maybe the ultraviolet spectrum. Yeah, that's the indicator light. Sure. Um, the fact that that's on means that the core is in fact charged and um, about to go critical, um, which is a good thing in this case. Okay. Um, the core needs to go critical and able sure. to produce enough of these energy to create these epsilon yes. waves. The chain reaction uh, uh, dial is almost at uh, at peak. Right, and there's some uh, there's this uh, this other you see this little uh, the Geiger counter's going crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fine. Don't worry about that. Are we doing yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.